You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Each year, Reporters Without Borders reveals the World Press Freedom Index, an annual review of 180 countries and their relationship with the media. In this episode, Post Live, in partnership with Reporters Without Borders, will feature PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff and leading international journalist Maria Ressa and Burke Dutt for conversations about this year's findings, the challenges of the modern information landscape, and the critical role of the news industry in chronicling the global coronavirus pandemic and protests for racial justice. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed as a senior writer at the Washington Post. Today, Reporters Without Order, Orders, RSF, released its 2021 World Press Freedom Index. We're delighted to share some of the key findings with you here today on Washington Post Live. I'll hand over to U.S. Executive Director Anna Nelson to tell you more. Thanks, Francis. The index this year is both fascinating and troubling. At the very top, we have Norway, Finland, and Sweden, and they're the trio of Nordic countries that we generally always find at the top of our list of 180 countries. At the very bottom, we have Turkmenistan, we have uh, North Korea, and Eritrea. They are really uh, the worst offenders when it comes to press freedom. And in particular, we saw Malaysia fall by 18 points this year, and that's uh, very disturbing as well. You can see if you look at our global map that you have countries in yellow, for example, like Canada, which are doing well, where people generally have access to information and journalists can generally do their work. If you look, for instance, at uh, the countries in red, you've got Russia, where you obviously have a lot of propaganda. You have uh, the government uh, controlling the information that journalists receive. You have China uh, as a country that is uh, that shows up in black, and that's really indicative of the fact that it is in 100 that it is at uh, 177th place. That's right above the very worst offenders. So these are countries where you're just seeing a lot of violations. Maybe journalists are going to jail. Uh, maybe you have violence being used against journalists. Maybe people don't know where to find information or information is being withheld from them. And now it's my great honor to welcome two journalists who can talk extensively about the challenges facing journalists around the world. Maria Ressa, who's joining us from the Philippines, is the co-founder of The Raptor. And Bakar Dutt, who's joining us from India, thank you both for staying up so late this evening, founded the digital news outlet, Mojo. A very warm welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us. So Maria, maybe I can start with you. I'd like to ask you both about the situations in your own countries. I believe the Philippines ranks in the 130s, 132 or 134 um, in this new index. Could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges you face? And then Barca, I'd love to come to you afterwards. Sure. Um, so we dropped again, and it's this is you know uh, something that really the drop began in 2016. Uh, but you know, I guess it's my experience captures it in the last, in less than two years, uh, I've had to deal with 10 arrest warrants. So I've posted bail 10 times in order to be free and to keep working. Um, 
Rappler has nine criminal cases that it's facing in court. Uh, we haven't done anything wrong except be journalists. But aside from us, you know, uh, the major news organizations have all been over the last, since 2016, uh, have dealt with either harassment, intimidation, or legal cases. And probably the most egregious is our largest broadcaster, ABS-CBN, May 5th last year, lost its franchise. So essentially it shut down. Um, the last time that happened was in 1972 when Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law and it stayed shut for 14 years. So we're in this place where there's a veneer of democracy, lip service to democracy, but it is incredibly difficult to work as a journalist. Uh, journalists in Manila and outside have been arrested for flimsy reasons, have been released, but also have been killed. Just before we move on to you, Baca, uh, Maria, t tell me where the charges against you stand now. <laughs> I'm still fighting them, fighting them all in court, fighting for my rights, right? I, uh, where in June 15th last year, I was actually convicted of cyber libel. It's a Kafkaesque moment for me. Uh, I was convicted of a crime that didn't exist when we published the story uh, eight years earlier. So it, it's uh, uh, it, myself and our former researcher uh, were convicted, but Rappler was not. So that's only one. But essentially, we have uh, a slew of tax evasion cases. Um, cyber libel cases and securities fraud. In every single one of them, in incredible legal acrobatics had to happen to get these cases to court. Wow. So, Baka, you were confronted with a viral video that called for you and eight other journalists, I believe, to be hanged. Um, tell us about that. And, and India ranks 142, I think, even lower than the Philippines in this rating. Yeah. Um, so talking a little bit about this viral video, uh, basically we had uh, these massive protests by Indian farmers against a new set of laws that became a big international story. And we had, you know, international stars like Rihanna and Greta Thunberg jump in expressing solidarity with the farmers. Now you can argue about whether that was gratuitous support or symbolic support or whether they knew what they were talking about. But in India instead, we saw this massive overreaction. And when I say massive overreaction, I don't just mean that of the people, I mean by the state, uh, which decided that a toolkit, which is just shorthand for online activism that had been created and shared with uh, Greta Thunberg, the well-known climate change activist, really a teenager herself, uh, anybody named in that toolkit uh, was potentially anti-national, potentially seditious. Well, I happen to be one of the eight journalists uh, who was listed by uh, climate change activists uh, for, for being journalists who were on the ground covering the farmers' protests. And just for that, uh, we had a man come on, um, call for the eight of us to be executed. Uh, we were called anti-national. We were called all sorts of other uh, abusers. Uh, this video was seen 500,000 times before YouTube took it down. Uh, we had to get together the eight of us and write to all the other social media platforms for it to be taken down. The video was taken down, but the man who made the threats is still functioning. His accounts are still open. 
Uh, we tagged the, the police in all of our respective states. No action was take, taken against him. And four uh, functionaries of the ruling BJP party actually amplified this video by sharing it. Uh, so that was one thing that I experienced. And then I was listening to Maria and my digital platform Mojo is just a little over a year old. But we are facing our first criminal case, uh, which which could have uh, very well uh, and still could lead to my going to prison if it's actually executed. And this is because we reported uh, the story of a rape of a, uh, uh, I beg your pardon, a murder of a minor girl. And it was, we were falsely accused uh, by the police of saying that she was raped when she was not. But none of our reportage ever mentioned rape. We only spoke about the murder of this young woman. And, uh, and you know, when they confronted us, we said, you're accusing us of something that we never did. But by then, we had a criminal FIR uh, against us. My lawyers had to work the courts to try and get anticipatory bail for me. And we're still waiting to see what happens uh, on that. And like with Maria, my individual story only captures a larger, um, you know, a larger problem. And the problem in India is this. At one level, we're a very functioning democracy. If you if you asked us about how we do as an electoral democracy, we do quite well. We have free and fair elections. We do well at the transfer of power. We're a noisy democracy. But if you ask us how we do as an institutional democracy, our roots are not that deep. What happens between elections, including how free the media really is and what backlash uh, the media faces uh, for calling out certain narratives, that's where we need to turn our lens. So India has called itself the world's largest democracy. Uh, is that a, 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 a name it can still stand up for, given your experience there? Well, I would say uh, I, I, I would say that it depends on how you define democracy. So, if democracy is the peaceful transition of power where people get to vote and choose their governments, we are very much a democracy. But I think democracy is also what happens between elections. I think democracy is what happens in the everyday compact between a citizen and her state. And I think democracy is about the institutions that hold power to account uh, being allowed to function. And I think on that last point, uh, we are seeing a diminishing uh, of that space. And by the way, uh, you know, while of course it's one party, the, the BJP that's in power in the center, I would say uh, in our provinces, in our, in our states, uh, every politician having seen, and, it, and in some ways I hold parts of my fraternity responsible, having seen large sections of India's mainstream media quite willing to be co-opted, Politicians in India have now realized that large sections of journalists are willing to be quite mild, are willing to be quite tame. And, you know, a politician loves nothing better than a tame journalist. So while we hold governments to account, we must also hold our, our own fraternity to account. I don't know what experience Maria has with, with this, but I've seen with alarm uh, a, kind of sh a kind of supplicant uh, sort of character, you know, taking over large parts, especially of the television media. One of the reasons that I actually left it, uh, I was a television journalist for more than two decades and I left it to go independent on the digital, in the digital world because I couldn't bear to see what was happening to television news in India. Maria, perhaps you could pick up on that, but also speak specifically about the unique challenges women face in this increasingly difficult world. I mean, look, India and the Philippines in, in the in the RSF uh, index are roughly in the same place. India's 142, the Philippines is 138. And I think what several things we have in common in common. Um, the first is how the state is now 
kind of cherry picking. In the Philippines, a new anti-terror law uh, allows the government to declare anyone a terrorist. Once that is, they can be arrested without a warrant and held for up to 24 days. Um, this anti-terror law, there are 37 petitions at the Supreme Court demanding it be declared unconstitutional. But essentially, it's called red tagging, right? You're in, in India, it's you're, you're anti, anti-India, anti-national. Um, that's the most recent attack. But the methodology is the same, bottom-up exponential attacks on social media, the huge role social media plays to enable this top-down attack. So in my case, bottom-up exponential attacks, weakening the ground, acting like fertilizer when the government comes top-down. And in, in our case, meta-narrative is journalist equals criminal. So that was seeded in 2016. Uh, we challenged the impunity of the government in the, this brutal drug war. And then top down, 2017, President Duterte says Rappler is a criminal in his State of the Nation address. In 2018, I get 11 cases filed against me and Rappler. 2019 are the arrests. Uh, 2020, a conviction. 2021, I get another arrest warrant. So that's the 10th. But look, women, are disproportionately attacked. Our data in the Philippines shows that women are attacked at least 10 times more than men. I hope you know, you'll know you see UNESCO will be coming out for World Press Freedom Day with a more comprehensive report that will show that women bear the brunt of these attacks on social media. I think finally, the last thing is just how much has shifted from 2016 to today in terms of the role social media is playing. I, I would say, you know, we sounded the alarm in 2016, but today I would call social media a behavior modification system. This business model that it uses that actually shifts and encourages mob rule to attack, to target. Um, targeting women journalists is only one of the many things. But the problem with this, of course, is emergent behavior. When the mob comes for you and the mob is directed, the kinds of uh, the only weapon a journalist has is to keep doing your job. <laughs> Which brings me exactly to the question I wanted to ask of both of you. What does keep you going at this point? And maybe, Baka, you can uh, start with this, talk a little bit about the role of being a woman journalist, and then tell us, how do you keep this commitment to, to getting the truth out? Well, you know, I mean, I agreed literally with like, I found myself just doing this the whole time that Maria was speaking because to be female, independent, opinionated, and God forbid successful, uh, how much do people hate a successful high profile woman? How much do they hate, uh, uh, you know, a woman who is willing to wear her ambition, uh, her dreams on her sleeve, uh, who's not willing to be co-opted by this ideology or that ideology? Um, and, and it is absolutely mob behavior. And let us make no bones about it, it is violence. The number of times that I have been threatened with sexual violence online, I cannot even count anymore. Death threats, uh, all through 2020, in the beginning of 2020, I received nude pictures in a coordinated attack on my mobile phone in the thousands, nothing happened. Even though I made a list of the 12 worst offenders, nothing really happened to punish these men. There was a token arrest of one of them. The other 11 were just let off. I don't even know what happened to the one guy who was, uh, who was picked up briefly. 
uh, how do we keep going? I think we keep going from the, at least I do, from the sheer stubbornness that I'm not going to let them win. And initially what I would do when I was younger is that I would get engaged in arguments with these people online. I would actually believe that they were really interested in having a conversation, that this was some democratization of the public discourse. I was innocent enough to idealize social media and think it to be this free space which was equal and everybody could say what they wanted to till I realized that everything about me as a woman was under scrutiny, uh, who uh, my relationships might be real or imagined. There were husbands fabricated for me and placed on Wikipedia. All of the husbands were named as Muslims to explain uh, my secularism, my pluralistic values, um, how I look, what I weigh, what the color of my skin is, whether I smoke, whether I drink, who I have sex with. Um, and all of this is often fictionalized, but even if it were real, so what? But it's all open for comments. And this is what happens to women. It's always morality plus violence to somehow silence women. My answer has been to hunker down and to keep working. We're under a second wave of COVID right now through 2020 and 2021. I was literally among a handful of journalists in this country who to go out. I traveled across India through literally chasing the virus. I spent 130 days on the road last year. I've already spent about a fortnight this year. Uh, I, I had to learn the hard way that you answer to nobody but your own conscience. Because the moment you start answering to other people, uh, as a woman, there's no, there, 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 there's, no one's going to leave you any space. You know, I remember Hillary Clinton. I was, I was interviewing her on a trip to India, and she quoted Eleanor Roosevelt to say that if you're a woman in the public eye and you're successful and you have a mind, you need to have a skin as, the, as thick as the hide of a rhinoceros. Well, I think I finally grew that height. <laughs> Maria, maybe you can pick up on this notion about the pandemic. Um, how has it affected your ability to do your job? How has the government, how have government lockdowns affected you? Oh, well, the Philippines has had the, one of the longest lockdowns in the world. But I, I would say I would say two things to add to what Barca said, which is, you know, the problem is that the we can describe what the tip of the iceberg looks like, which are the attacks that we live through every day, every minute, every time we pick up a cell phone. But here's the thing, all the research from 2016 to today shows you that, that lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts, which are really boring on social media platforms. And what are the largest, I mean, Facebook is the world's largest distributor of news. So when facts are replaced by lies, or we, when you cannot, when you do not have facts, you don't have a shared set of facts, a shared set of realities, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without any of these, you not only can't have democracy, but it is impossible to solve these existential problems that we're facing globally, which is climate change, the virus, um, the battle for truth, right? Um, coronavirus has only made it worse. Early on, a year ago, I think I wrote a piece that said, don't let uh, the virus infect democracy. Well, it has. Many governments around the world, including mine, have used it to consolidate power and to get, a, to get 
the money that is supposed to go to the public to get access to larger funds. Our borrowings have increased tremendously during this time period. And yet, like India, we're also in another lockdown as severe as it was a year ago with contact tracing nowhere near. Look, every country can complain about this. I'd say the last thing is that if you cannot deliver facts, you cannot solve these problems. So the attacks against me, against Barca, this is a global problem. These things are just the frosting. You know, we can describe them to you, but it is important and imperative that we act like we did post-World War II, that an atom bomb has been unleashed in our information ecosystem, and we should collectively, globally, do something to bring facts back. Wow. Um, Baka, when I have spoken to public health officials in this country, they sometimes hold up India as an example of a country that knows how to do public health, knows how to do mass vaccinations. But with this troubling uh, level of misinformation, how has vaccine hesitancy been spreading? What are the kind of rumors out there about uh, the coronavirus and how are people like you trying to tackle them? Yeah, uh, great question, because yes, we actually do have a stellar record on mass uh, immunization programs, uh, polio, smallpox, chickenpox. This is a country that produces 60%. We manufacture 60% of the world's vaccines even before uh, the coronavirus pandemic hit us. Uh, and yet our messaging uh, has been so confused, has been so mixed up. And, and frankly, that mixed messaging has come from our political establishment. And let me give you a small example. You cannot tell people to mask up and avoid large crowds if in other parts of the country, you have massive election rallies and religious congregations that even in the midst of an inferno of a of a second uh, COVID wave. And I just came to this program straight uh, from a cremation uh, site where uh, there were you know, bodies li lined up on fires for as long as the eye could see, and then some, and then there were others still stacked up at the backs of ambulances waiting their turn uh, to get a funeral. So we're really in the middle of an inferno, and yet we have not stopped election rallies. We have not stopped state, uh, you know, localized elections. We have not stopped religious congregations. Finally, when uh, literally, uh, you know, the, the numbers started shooting through the roof, we had some of these uh, congregations pulled back and converted into uh, into token events, but the elections are still on. And, and, and you know, it just seems ironic to me that our politicians seem to want to have one rule for citizens and another rule for themselves. And what that does is, in against the backdrop of this mixed messaging, people believe all kinds of things. So, for example, uh, we have manic lines for a drug called remdesivir, even though the WHO has said repeatedly that remdesivir does not work in critical patients. But the moment you have a critical patient, you have mass lines, which are crowded spaces in themselves looking for remdesivir. We have states that are closing down parks and beaches and keeping restaurants open when it should be the other way around. We have all kinds of gobbledygook, alternative therapies being, be, you know, being promoted out there on WhatsApp. Uh, literally, we call it the WhatsApp University, uh, where people are being told, if you have this, if you have turmeric, if you combine this with this kind of homeopathy, oh, you'll be immune against the virus. And this is all a lot of BS, right? Uh, what do we do? We keep trying to say the same thing over and over again. But guess what? Maria is absolutely right. Rumor, malice, hatred, fake news, 
it just travels quicker than facts. And this is the real crisis. There is an information pandemic. There is a COVID-19 pandemic, and then there is a fake news pandemic. And frankly, we're helpless. What can we keep doing but to try and be old-fashioned reporters? I'd love to have time for one last question for the two of you. Uh, we have very little time, but are you more concerned or optimistic going ahead? Maria, do you see any reason for optimism? And I am afraid we have to keep it brief. And then Barca after that. So the, vi the virus in the real world, I think is not as bad as the virus of lies in the information ecosystem, because this virus of lies can infects real people. It changes their worldview. It makes them impervious to facts. And you've seen it in the United States. January 6th is the perfect example of the virus of lies and real world action, right? Um, this is a problem globally and uh, how we deal with it, I think. You know, we look to you, hopefully, you know, you're there, but what this World Press Freedom Index shows is that the problem is global and it has only gotten worse year on year. It's gotten more dangerous to be a journalist today. Baka, your views. Well, very quickly, um, I'm, a, I'm a bit terrified uh, of what, what lies ahead because, you know, while it seemed liberating at one point that everybody with a cell phone and a, a broadband could potentially be a journalist, uh, today you talk about gatekeeping and you're just considered dinosauric, right? Uh, so the media has to uh, contemplate what went wrong that people lost lost trust. Why are we not more believed than the random uncle or aunt or neighbor who sends some completely bizarre thing on WhatsApp? We are, uh, we are both fighting. Uh, the brave, brave journalists are fighting under threat. Uh, and, and, and at the same time, the media isn't being believed and trusted in the way that it once was. And this contradiction makes being a journalist not just dangerous, but also extremely lonely and isolating. And I think it's going to be a psychological battle, not just a physical battle going ahead. Well, Maria Rasa in the Philippines, Barka Dat in India, I hope we've overcome that loneliness just a little bit by joining together um, online today and spreading your words. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's not just in the world of the rest of the world. The index today takes a tough look also at the US and soon I'll be back with PBS NewsHour anchor, Judy Woodruff. In the meantime, here's Anna Nelson from Reporters Without Borders. When you look here, right here in the United States, the picture isn't rosy. In fact, the U.S. comes out at 44th place uh, in this year's ranking, and that's pretty disappointing when you have a country that prides itself on freedom of expression and on freedom of the press. What we saw was really a, a, a mix last year of assaults against journalists. There were around 400 assaults uh, and attacks against journalists, primarily during the racial justice movement. We also saw about 130 journalists arrested just for doing their jobs. That's really troubling. Add on top of that the disinformation uh, that we saw, the polarization, the politicization of news, where we get our information, where we're uh, looking to, who we trust to give us uh, the news and information we need during uh, a crisis like COVID. 
those are really some troubling trends. And if we look at um, what COVID has demonstrated across the globe, but especially here in the US, it's that no one, no society is immune to disinformation. I'm now delighted to welcome PBS News, our anchor and managing editor, Judy Woodruff. Judy, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. I'm so delighted to join you and, and so honored to just be able to listen to Maria and Barca. What a, what a wonderful and important conversation with them. Wasn't that inspiring and also, and also worrying? Well, Anna just gave us the number that the US is 44th in this ranking. Um, what's your reaction to that? Disappointing. <laughs> we are the country uh, with uh, the First Amendment, uh, freedom of the press enshrined in our Constitution. Um, it's something that is in our DNA as Americans, that the press is part of our, it's part of who we are, what our democracy is, how we operate as a country. And to think that we are that far down the list uh, is disturbing. But, but Francis, what you've been discussing with Maria and Barca, the issues that are taking place around the world, some of those things we're seeing here in the US, and you just saw the video, uh, journalists arrested uh, during the, the protests after the death of George Floyd, uh, assaulted, uh, and it's happening right up until this weekend. So we have, we have a lot to account for and a lot of hard questions to ask. You've had a long and storied career, and it's such an honor to speak with you, but tell us a little bit about how it's changed, about opinion and journalism, about social media, and the trends you've seen, and how you've either um, gone with them or tried to fight against them. Well, I, I, Francis, I laugh sometimes about having gone back to the Garfield administration. It's, it's not true. I don't go quite back that far, but I did come to Washington uh, during the Jimmy Carter uh, administration to cover the White House and then on to Reagan and uh, uh, other administrations, everyone since then. And uh, what we've seen in, in, since I worked in local uh, news in Atlanta is such a transformation technologically from uh, the, the reign of the big newspapers, uh, three broadcast channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that was it. And today, of course, there's cable, uh, countless cable channels, countless news outlets, online, endless um, uh, web sites and more, not to mention social media. We are swimming in a sea of information right now. People are bombarded with facts and, and frankly disinformation uh, in a way that makes it much, much harder uh, for news consumers to tell the difference between what's real and what's confirmed which is after all what journalism is supposed to be about. We're supposed to confirm information before we report it. Uh, and what is simply made up, what somebody just thought happened or decided deliberately to put out there. So the work of journalism, I think today is harder than it's ever been. And uh, I think the, the young journalists I see today or who work with me at the news hour and I watch at other news organizations, uh, frankly, have so much more on their plate. They're dealing with something, again, you just talked about, a much more skeptical public, a public that doesn't trust us. So the environment of journalism is very different. It's not to say that it was a, it was a walk in the park 40-some-plus uh, years ago when I started out, uh, almost 50 years ago. Um, but it, it wasn't perfect then, but it's certainly more complicated now. 
So it's not just that journalists have been attacked from the outside, from the from the watching or listening public, but also some of the hallowed news organizations of this country have had internal reckonings over issues like uh, structural racism and following the Me Too movement. Do you think we're at a crisis in terms of our own standards of ob objectivity and how to do reporting? I don't know if I'd call it a crisis, but I do think we are having our own reckoning at the same time the country is around Me Too and the uh, both the, the role of women in journalism, how we treat women in news coverage, how we incorporate women's voices, women's experiences into the stories that we report. Um, and, and then of course, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, um, the, the, the racial reckoning that's taking place in this country has certainly hit uh, the news media as it has every institution uh, in the country, as it should. I mean, I like, I, I like to say that we in the media have thought for many, many decades, for years, that we, that we got it right, that we were enlightened, uh, if you will, that we knew it was important uh, to, to pay uh, equal attention uh, to women and to women's issues, uh, on, to, to take gender uh, as something that's significant and important. And at the same time that we were enlightened when it came to issues around race and ethnicity and religious differences. But the fact is, uh, for all the, the progress we've made, and there has been some, uh, we still have a long way to go. We don't have nearly as many reporters uh, uh, who, who represent different races, different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds. We have got a lot of work to do in that regard. We're starting to do better, but we're really at the beginning of that. And in terms of the stories we cover, we need more people making decisions around, around how we cover something, what we cover, how we cover it, who covers it. So all of these things are part of the the, the meeting, I should say, we have a meeting every morning to talk about what we're going to cover on the PBS NewsHour that evening. Um, and the subjects, the questions, the list grows longer, as it should. We should be holding ourselves accountable. Do you look back at stories you covered 10, 20, whatever, however many years ago, and think they would have been covered differently now with the, the heightened awareness you're talking about, about these, these racial and gender issues? No question. I mean, one that came to mind to me last night when we learned about the death of former Vice President Walter Mondale uh, was a reminder that he was the first presidential uh, nominee of a major political party in this country to choose a woman as his running mate, Geraldine Ferraro, the late Geraldine Ferraro, who, of course, had been a member of Congress from New York. Um, the way her candidacy was covered, the way she was covered, I had so much to, of course she was the first, so there's some of that to be expected. But when I think about the way she was seen through that lens and almost every story was about how would she as a woman handle this? How would a woman be different? Today with, with uh, uh, Vice President Harris, Kamala Harris, uh, there was some of that, but not as much. And I think it's been a painful series of lessons that we've learned over the years, and frankly, that we are still learning. I'm sure Vice President Harris would say that she still feels there's a difference in how she's covered uh, because she's a woman. But no question, we've come a long way. I mean, I think back in terms of race, the issues that we covered. I mean, when I was a local reporter in Atlanta for the CBS station, and we were covering issues around redlining and blockbusting, and having to do with real estate and 
whether black families could be sold a home in, in various neighborhoods. Um, and, and we did cover those stories, but um, I think we didn't stay with them as we should have. I think we would dip in and cover them and say, this is really terrible, and then we would move on. And what I hope the difference is today is that when we come upon uh, parts of, of our life and our culture, that we will stay with it, that we will make it part of our daily routine to look at these issues um, and, and not to make it something remarkable and, and unusual. So one of the uh, trends that Barker alluded to a little bit and I'd love to ask you about is the fate of local news. I mean, some organizations we know are thriving and are able to, and I'm working for one that is able to increase its overseas coverage. And uh, yet at the same time, we see smaller uh, newspapers and news organizations shrinking and struggling. What do you think the fate of those organizations is going to be? And how do we manage with these news deserts growing across the country, which was so vital to our understanding of the country? It's such an important question, uh, Francis. And I, I would love to have the answer. I would love to tell you that um, in my pocket, I have um, the key. But the fact is, we know it is very hard. We know thousands of reporters have been laid off. Hundreds and hundreds of newspapers have closed down. Maybe thousands. I, I don't have the number uh, on the tip of my tongue. But what I know from just having read stories in the last few days about how difficult it is to find owners for major uh, newspapers in the country, like the Baltimore Sun, owners who will preserve the, the, the mission of journalism and not try to cut, 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 uh, cut people, cut spending on reporting. Um, it's, it's, it's an enormous issue. We are seeing some bright lights, as you say, there are online news organizations that have cropped up in different communities in different states. I think of Texas and the, the Texas Tribune. I think of um, uh, the work that some other smaller, um, more local or more, more niche, if you will, organizations are doing. But overall, the American people today are not getting the kind of local news coverage that they deserve. And what does that mean? That means school boards are not getting covered. Local issues around um, not only education, but uh, public utilities, um, public safety, um, these things are going uncovered. And um, I mean, we've, we've known this for a long time. We've known there needed to be more resources. I've long thought that there was way too much coverage, frankly, of the White House. I know when I covered President Carter and then President Reagan and there would be a mob of reporters there, I kept thinking, surely there are important stories to cover out there. We're all, we're all sort of falling all over each other to cover the same thing. And to some extent that still exists, although the pandemic has obviously distanced all of us and there are fewer people physically present. In terms of the news space, we need to be paying more attention to communities. And that's why what I'm not just plugging the Washington Post um, and thanking the Post for what it's doing, but we need more examples like that around the country. But I don't underestimate the difficulty of it. I don't underestimate. We've, we've seen well-intentioned investors like Warren Buffett, who at one point owned, what, 40-some newspapers around the country, but he's begun to disinvest because it's just become too expensive for him to continue. Judy, I do want to ask you about the pandemic. If anything, it's heightened the need for factual reporting. It's it's highlighted the challenges of doing that. Could you tell us specifically about the kinds of challenges you face in trying to get accurate information about a public health crisis to a broad range of people? 
Well, it's it's um, it's like nothing we've ever uh, had to deal with before. I've been reporting and anchoring from home. I'm here at my home as I'm talking to you. And up until two weeks ago, I was anchoring from home for over a year um, because of the pandemic. All of us were working from home. It was harder to reach sources on the one hand. On the other hand, we found almost paradoxically that we could get people on the air who previously we would have not considered because they lived in, I don't know, name a small town, Peoria, Illinois, or they lived in um, a small city in Oregon or California. And we would have thought, well, we'll never, we can't get them to fly to Los Angeles or New York to get to a studio. Uh, today, we realize that thanks to the technology of things like this, like Skype, like Zoom and all the other technologies, we can bring people to the screen. We can bring those voices. We've heard the voices of people who are experiencing unemployment, who are worried about uh, their children with disabilities and how they're going to be cared for, whether they're going to get their therapy, whether they're going to get an education. We've been able to talk to those parents and those healthcare providers directly. And that has been, in a way, one of the hidden um, and totally unexpected gifts of this pandemic and an otherwise terrible, terrible time. But in terms of getting raw information, I will say it has never been easy to get <laughs> statistics from an administration, from a government that didn't want to share them. And yet dogged reporters like those at the Washington Post and other news organizations have been able to get a lot of it. They're still doing that. I would say broadly, this administration is more cooperative, uh, broadly speaking, but there are exceptions. And so, you know, the answer is that we have to keep working hard every single day, asking tough questions, um, not taking no for an answer. When people don't return the call, keep trying, try other sources. Um, it all it all matters. We've got to have those facts or we can't function as a democracy. So the Biden press office has promised greater transparency, but President Biden has also been criticized for not holding, was criticized for not holding a press conference in the first 50 days. Should this administration be doing more to increase press freedom? Well, that's a big question. I think, I think the fact that we are at the very least now having regular press briefings by the press secretary, Jen Psaki, I think that at least gives the sense that they are hearing questions, they are taking questions from reporters, even if they're not answering everyone, they're saying, we'll get back to you on that. Um, I think that is an avenue of access that we did not have before in the previous administration. It is true that the president didn't hold a formal news conference for some time, but he has taken questions on a few occasions. You know, we are never gonna have the full and complete 100% access in the, in the way of of in public uh, microphone ready uh, Q&A sessions that we would like. To me, what's most important is that the people who have information in this administration do take our phone calls, do go on camera, whether they're an assistant secretary of something or other, or the president of the United States, that they are answering our questions and are responsive. Um, and I would say the same thing is true across the government, not just in the administration, but across the Congress, um, and, and in the 50 states, which we know today play an outsized role in how we've dealt with this, with this pandemic. Um, more information, more sunlight is better, um, and we want it regularly. We don't want it to be a phenomenon when we get it. We want to, we want to know that um, it's just something that's given as a matter of course, that happens as a matter of course. Um, but I have to say, Francis, I don't know if you were going to ask about this. The other piece of that is the trust of the American people. And it's, 
you know, we heard both Barca and Maria talk about it. It is a real problem in this country. The largest proportion ever, the American people say they don't trust the media, period. And it's something that we in the media have got to, to look at honestly and openly and talk about why. So Judy, I want to read to you a sentence that, uh, that Anna has used from uh, reports about borders and other leaders in that organization. They say the vaccine, uh, that journalism is like a vaccine to inoculate citizens against the viral dissemination of falsehoods and conspiracy theories. So what's the best way to increase trust? I mean, that's a, you know, it's a big question again to ask you, but how do you go about it? How should we be going about it? I think to to ask the questions and to answer them. I mean, today, the distrust, um, the number of people who say they don't trust the vaccine, they don't trust uh, taking it and they don't plan to take it. Um, it, it, you know, until we get to that mysterious thing called herd immunity, that's something we have to worry about. I think we in the press play a huge role in 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 just getting information to people from people they trust. And if they don't trust us, then we have to find other voices, um, other figures, the trusted figures, whether they are um, people who come out of the faith community or local leaders, education leaders, uh, community leaders, whatever that is, um, we have to find ways to get that message across. But to me, the way we earn back the confidence of the American people, the very least what we have to do is to be as transparent as possible about our work. When we make a mistake, to admit it. Um, uh, to say what the limitations are of our reporting. If we don't have all the information we need, if we're not getting a point of view, if people aren't answering our phone calls, we need to share that with our audience so they know that what information we're getting is from a particular point of view. Um, that transparency, that just constant stream of facts is the only way we can we can win, I think, the trust of the American people. And I think it's also on us not to, um, you know, to be transparent about our own views. If we view ourselves as an advocate more than we do as reporters, we need to be upfront about that. You know, that if, say if I'm a columnist and I'm coming to you with information, I'm coming from this perspective, but that's distinct from what I'm hearing from a reporter whose job it is to get the facts and gather them no matter where the chips fall. So we, there's just a lot more transparency that I think needs to take place. Judy, I want to ask one last question. You and I have seen colleagues go out uh, to cover protests and other things wearing flak jackets. I saw a report today saying that reporters needed emotional flak jackets because of the kind of hostility we heard about earlier on from Maria and Boca. Do you worry about the future of the profession when there's such hostility to those who practice it? I do, and I, I want to think that we are in a difficult moment right now where um, you have a not only the, uh, the reckoning between police and how they handle uh, the apprehension and arrests of, of black men and black boys, we have a reckoning over that. Um, and we in the press, in, in some instances, are clearly caught in the middle of that because reporters are out there covering the protests, covering this, these stories. We've got to find a way to make sure that uh, the, both our, our leaders in our government, law enforcement, understand the important role of the press. I was actually shocked at the number of instances I've read about of 
reporters singled out for beatings, for being sprayed. And I guess you could write it off in some instances because maybe they couldn't, the identification wasn't clear, but we, we, we need to be much more direct and forceful in talking to our government leaders and talking to law enforcement and reminding them about the importance of the role of press. But I do worry about it. I think it goes hand in hand with this disintegration of trust uh, toward the press. And um, you know, none of us went into this line of work to be popular. We didn't, you know, if you, if you wanna be popular, you shouldn't be a reporter. It, the two things don't go hand in hand. But on the other hand, uh, we don't wanna be seen as the enemy and seen as, you know, to be distrusted. All this talk of enemy of the American people did great damage uh, during the previous administration. And we have to stand up to that and fight against that. But at the same time, we have to be clear about our role and be clear that uh, it's, it's not an easy one. Being clear about a role, that's a great message to take away. Judy Woodruff, thank you so much for joining me at Washington Post Live. Really glad to be with you, Francis. Thank you. Thank you. The Washington Post Press Freedom Partnership continues to call for the safe release of Austin Tice, who was detained more than eight years ago in Syria. You can join and support Austin Cause by ordering a free Austin Tice bracelet available, and I'm going to show you the, the uh, email address at wapo.st slash tice. That's www.wapo.st slash tice. As always, thank you very much for joining me. I'm Francis Steve Sellers. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.